Today is the second part of a series of conversations that we're calling Set Apart, in which we're going to be talking about personal holiness. Today we want to begin to get practical. So how do we do it? How do we become the kind of people we were designed to be? How do we become utterly devoted to the cause of Christ? How do we become like God in our character and our motivations? In other words, how do we grow in personal holiness? The best place to begin this investigation, I think, is Romans chapter 6. Romans is a letter that Paul wrote. It's in the New Testament. And I'd love for you to look at Romans chapter 6. This morning, as we're walking through it, we'll be referencing Romans chapter 6 throughout. I would also invite you to look at it uh, several times this week. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul offers what I think amounts to a brief primer on how to be holy. And I hope we'll be able to explain this even more over the next couple of weeks. We've got so many things to say from Romans 6, we won't be able to do it all this morning. We'll get as far as we can get this morning, and then we'll continue it next week. And I hope that if you were given a program, you have a little sermon card in it, which will give you fill-in-the-blanks for at least five points of the Apostle Paul's blueprint for personal holiness. But we're going to read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, and then we'll skip down to 22. We'll pick up the rest of it uh, next week as we dial through this more. But this is really uh, thrilling and awesome stuff. We're going to try to make two of the five points this morning. The first one we'll spend more time with. The second one will be real brief. And the first one, we're going to spend more time with it because we sort of need to set up the question. We need to set up why this chapter is even here, what Paul is addressing. And I think you'll see how this is really a blueprint for us living personally holy lives. So Romans 6, it's kind of a long reading. We're going to go 1 through 14 and verse 22. But I'm going to ask you to go old school and stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. It'll be on the screen in the NIV. If you have a phone or a Bible app, look it up and read along. Translations are all pretty similar. So let's look together at Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? And the Apostle Paul here is mimicking the the question that he knows is in people's minds and hearts based on what he's said so far in Romans. And I'll explain that more in a minute. What should we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? That's ridiculous. By no means. We are those who died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him like this in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he can't die again. Death no longer has mastery over him, and the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Okay, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. Skip down to verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. Okay, may God bless this and open it up to us. You may be seated. Sometime last spring, I spent some time trying to memorize Romans chapter 6. I didn't recite it for you because I'm not nearly as brave or as smart as Sandy. And also, this translation is slightly different from the one I use, which is a fabulous excuse. If you ever try to memorize something, you don't really have it nailed, just say to the person, I would, but this translation is different. And that's always a wonderful exercise for me. It's memorizing, just kind of meditating on and thinking about what I believe is God's inspired word is always rich for me. It's one of the most important Christian rituals for me, personally. So I was memorizing Romans chapter 6, and Phil Salee had given me a great hint, mechanism. I take my phone and go to the memo, voice memo thing, and I record myself reading Romans 6. And then when I'm out hiking, I can listen to myself, and I'll listen to, and I read it, I'll read like two sentences, then I pause. And then two more sentences, then I pause for ten seconds. And that gives me a chance to press pause and then rewind and do those same two verses over and over again. So I spent some weeks, really, just every time I was walking or often when I was in the car, I was listening to Romans 6 and I was soaking in. And I remember one morning in particular, I wanted to go for a long walk down the path system out behind our house in Ashburn. And... I had gotten pretty far in Romans 6 at that point, and I was saying to myself, and I was knocking down a new section, and just, I was so enriched. It was a morning like this. It was spectacular. And, you know, I got close to home, and I am feeling like Jesus. And then I realize, I, I get close to my house, and I realize I have this perennial struggle with, I tore my right Achilles a number of years ago, And now it healed, but now my left Achilles just bothers me all the time. I have tendonitis in my left Achilles, and I have to do all kind of things to avoid it. And I was getting close to the house, and I realized, oh, and my Achilles was killing me. It was particularly bad this day, and it ticked me off. You know, it made me feel old. I go, I take a shower, get ready. I'm driving out to the office, and on the way out to the office, one of our children called me. And we have a car that somebody gave us years ago that has... Uh, 798,000 miles on it, and it needed repair. And the repair was more than the car was worth. So, you know, what do we do? We can't afford to replace it, but we can't afford to repair it, and he can't drive it. You know, son, have you considered a bicycle? But no, that wouldn't work because he's working in Tyson's. And, you know, I get into the office, and I'm like, what are we going to do about the car? And somebody calls me, not anyone who's here today. It's not any of you wonderful people. But somebody calls me with a complaint, believe it or not. And it was really a complaint about something that happened to their child. And I felt, you know, for the next 20 minutes like I got slimed. And I hung up the phone, and I was ready to 
frustrated and ready to bite somebody's head off. And I thought, how do I do this, Paul? How do I not let sin be my master? How do I live righteously so that I reap holiness and gain the results of eternal life? How? How do I hold on to the attitude I had just an hour ago? <laughs> just almost, it was awesome. And that's when this series started taking shape for me. I literally started saying Romans 6 again, and I realized, oh, this is why you have me in Romans 6. This is a blueprint, and I believe that the Apostle Paul gives us at least five points in the blueprint that will help us grow in personal holiness. Along the way, we're going to talk about how important personal holiness is to you. Because some of you may be thinking, so what? And it's a big deal. But this morning we're going to begin to get practical about how you do it. And I'm going to give you Paul's five blueprints right away. So if you're keeping score at home, if you have one of those sermon cards, you can fill in the blanks right now. Let's look at Paul's five points of his blueprint that we'll be talking about for the next couple of weeks. Number one, if we're going to grow in personal holiness, we must understand and act on the profound change of identity which has been realized in us. We have been made new. We have been made new. New. And we have to understand and act on the profound change of identity which has been realized in us. Secondly, if we're going to grow in personal holiness, we must practice Christian ritual rightly understood. We must practice Christian ritual rightly understood. Third, if we're going to grow in personal holiness, our connection to God, our connection to God cannot be primarily motivated by what benefits us. There's great benefit to us, but you will not grow in personal holiness if the primary motivation for your connection to God is what benefits you. You'll find yourself bumping up against a ceiling. Fourth, if we're going to grow in personal holiness, we must refuse to follow our evil desires. Refuse. Not because we have to, but because we can. Finally, if we're going to grow in personal holiness, we must make ourselves slaves to God. So the ways in which we have pursued our evil desires, some of those same ways we pursue God. We make ourselves a slave to Him. Let's unpack the first two of those, and we'll spend more time on the first one. If we're going to grow in personal holiness, we must understand and act on the profound change of identity which has been realized in us. We've got to understand and act on the profound internal change of identity. We're brand new. We've got to understand that and act on it. It's happened to us. We've been made new, and we have to understand that and act on it. All right, look. We all know this, but our identity is critically important to the day-to-day decisions we make and how we live. The young man who doesn't see himself as athletic would never voluntarily take up the game of golf. The young woman who thinks of herself as overweight and unattractive will not host the pool party. The clothes and cars we buy are a function of our sense of identity. Our leisure activities are heavily influenced by who we think we are. So because of our connection to God, we have literally been made new. We have a new identity. In order to fully appreciate 
what Paul says here, especially at the beginning of this chapter, we've got to understand the question he's answering. As I said earlier, I want to give you some of the background, so stay with me. We'll go through this quickly. Let me explain the background that leads to this opening question. Now, through this whole letter, Paul does a pretty thorough job of laying out a systematic structure for Christian thinking. And it's important to note that he starts building the structure for Christian thinking with emphasizing the idea that we've all blown it. We've all blown it. Again, this is his starting point, and he beats it to a pulp. So I'm going to drill through some scripture here real quick, more to this point, because he comes at it from several different angles to demonstrate to us that we've all blown it. Summarizing, here's what he says. Look, if you're a Jew, you've sinned underneath the law by breaking the law. If you're not a Jew, you've sinned apart from the law by violating the dictates of your own conscience. Either way, you've blown it. Here's how he says it in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For God doesn't show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. He continues his argument in chapter 3, verse 10. He's quoting from a familiar Old Testament psalm. Listen to what he says. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. There is no one who does good. Then he summarizes fully at the end of chapter 3 to make sure we don't miss the point. He says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all blown it. Let's be sure that we're clear about this. The result of our blowing it is God's judgment. In fact, he'll say later in chapter 6, The wages of sin... What you get from the fact that you've blown it is death. And this wasn't any easier for them to hear than it is for us. Basically, he's saying no one is getting it right, therefore no one deserves God's favorable attention. In fact, we will be judged by God, and we will all perish. We're not basically good people who occasionally mess up. We're not on any kind of enlightened path. We don't understand. We don't get it at all. We blow it with reasonable consistency, and as a result, we'll be judged and condemned. Wait a minute, Paul. I understand why you get such a bad reputation. What about the really good people? According to Paul, there are no really good people. There are certainly people who are much kinder and more generous than other people. And I'm not saying we're as bad as we can be. Some of us work very hard at being magnanimous and gracious and and humble. But there is no one who measures up to God's standard. There's no one who really lives according to God's design. And this is the standard by which we will be assessed. So we're in deep trouble. But this epic bad news sets Paul up to deliver bone-shattering, life-changing good news. This sets Paul up for the big reveal. He gives us what Paul will call the gospel. You see, no matter how much we've blown it, his grace meets us where we are, and his grace makes up for our blowing it. We cannot blow it beyond God's capacity to love and forgive. No matter how deep our sin goes, God's grace goes deeper still. Because God has taken the just punishment we deserve on himself 
in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ, we now can have God's full attention and favor because the Father, by His grace, placed all the many ways in which we've blown it into the bloodstream of His own Son. And then the Father exacted the judgment for all of those misdoings against the Son, spilling His blood. There is now nothing that stands against us. If we receive this gracious action on our behalf, if we acknowledge it and lay claim to it, then we are forgiven and free. He summarizes in chapter 5. Listen to this. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that, just as sin reigned in death, just as sin always resulted in death, it was inexorable and inevitable so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And this was as awe-inspiring for them to hear as, as it is for us, but it was also confusing for them to hear. For most first century Romans, this didn't make any sense. So, we've all blown it all of us, but ultimately that doesn't matter if we accept God's gift by His grace. You see, that makes no sense to those of us who have a traditional religion wiring. For first century Romans, most of their religions were ethics-based. Let me explain. At the foundation of their religions were legal prescriptions for behavior. In other words, their thinking about religion was largely based on a list of do's and don'ts. This was also true to a large extent for the Jews of Jesus' day and today, by the way. And also, this is true of Islam. The foundations of these religions involve legal prescriptions for behavior. You can do this set of things on the Sabbath. You cannot do this other list of things. You must pray five times a day. You must not go to temple during these times or in this way, but you must go during these times and in this way. You cannot drink this or say that or be with this kind of person or with that kind of person. Honestly, this seems to be the way we all drift in our thinking about religion. This kind of feels like what religion is, doesn't it? But this is not what Jesus intended or what he taught. This is not the foundation of what it means to follow Christ. This is not how we build and maintain a real connection with God according to the Bible or how we grow in personal holiness. Later in his argument in chapter 10, Paul would say this incredible thing. Hey, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, You'll be saved. It's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. In other words, a real connection to God is initiated as we understand, really understand, and accept, really accept God's gracious activity on our behalf in Jesus. Period. Here's how God's justice system works. God is perfectly just God who created a universe with exact and finely tuned physical specifications, and every cosmologist today would agree, that must be maintained or matter itself will blow apart. In the same way, he has also established an an exact and finely tuned moral specifications, which must be met and kept in order, or spiritual reality will blow apart and perish. 
We have not met God's exact, finely tuned specifications. We have blown it. But the Father has placed the consequences of our blowing it on the Son. He has perished in our place. And we stand before God with a blank slate if we simply accept the exchange of Jesus' life for ours. Finally, that brings us to the question of Romans chapter 6. It goes something like this. Wait, what? What? Religion cannot be that easy, Paul. What about behavior? Are you saying it doesn't matter what we do? What should we say then? Should we just keep on sinning so that God's grace might increase? What? Listen, we want to be good people. How do we be good people if there aren't strict rules and regulations to keep us in place and to, to show us what to do? That's what religion is, isn't it? Can you see how this is set up for a blueprint for personal holiness? So what's Paul's answer? Let me give you a summary of his main point. The point we're starting with this morning. The main point is laid out in the first ten verses. In essence, this is what Paul is saying. Listen, when you really understand and accept what God has done for you through Jesus, then you become completely identified with Jesus. You are completely identified. You're in the club of Jesus. You're in the society of Jesus. You join the fraternity of Jesus. And a real transformation happens inside of you. Because of our identification with God's Son, we become dead people. More specifically, the former us dies. And something new comes to life in us. Something wonderful and something good and something holy comes to life in us. And we have to understand this and then grow in our ability to act on it. That's where it begins, and that's what enables us to grow. So let me read verses 2 through 10 again with that in mind. Listen to this, it is titanic. We are those who died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the death through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Look, if we have been united with him in his death, if we've identified with him to that degree, we'll certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone's died has been set free from sin. And if we died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. And that's going to affect how we live right now because we're so identified with him. We die. The old us died on the cross, died. And something new is alive in us. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he can't die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. And the death he died, by the way, he died to sin. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Holiness is not about following a strict code of conduct. That might make people compliant, but it will not make people holy. 
Personal holiness is not about imposing anything on us externally. Personal holiness is first of all about a real internal transformation that we learn to understand and act on with increasing depth and consistency. And I want you to notice how critical this is in Paul's thinking. Paul doesn't just offer this teaching. He knows how revolutionary this is if people really grab it. And he wants to make sure that people grab it. So listen to Paul's heart in this, in these verses again. Look, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Down to verse 5. If we've been united with him in his death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified. Listen, we know this. Down to verse 8. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will live with him. For we know that since Christ died, he can't die again. We, these, these are things we know. Don't you know this? He wants to make absolutely certain that we do know this, that we are brand new. Here's what this means. That angry mom who finds herself feeling guilty for having probably abused her children, that angry mom who was produced because she was raised by anger and negligence herself, that angry woman is dead! That's not you! That guy who was deeply and profoundly committed to having women be attracted to him, and that's how he made himself feel okay about himself, and so now he finds himself deeply committed to lust. That, that's not you! That guy's dead! That isn't you! That person who, who can't deal with life is just too much. They have to retreat into shopping or drinking or eating just to get by. That person is not you. That person is dead. There's something new alive in you. That old person, the one Paul calls the body ruled by sin, is dead. And you and I have to understand that. That takes a while, but as I learn to understand this and as I grow in my capacity to act on this truth, then I grow in personal holiness. We're the kind of people who act generously and justly. Other people feel better about themselves because they're around us. We're the kind of people who treat others not how they deserve to be treated, but how they need to be treated. And we don't do this because we have to. We do this because we get to. We've been changed. We've been enabled to act in such a way. And we're growing in our ability to do so as we grow in our understanding of the change within us. Growing in personal holiness means growing in our understanding and our ownership of the profound change of identity which has been realized in us. Secondly, and more quickly, stay with me. This one's drier and a little boring, but it's important. If we're going to grow in holiness, we must practice Christian ritual rightly understood. If we're going to grow in personal holiness, we must practice Christian ritual rightly understood. Stay with me. I want to look at verses 2 through 4 again. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know 
that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore, he now offers by way of explanation, buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. It's interesting that Paul begins building his blueprint for personal holiness by referencing baptism. Of course, baptism was how the earliest Christians announced their new identity, and it's still the same for us today. Some of you were with us a few weeks ago when we went out to Meadowkirk and to Goose Creek and had a spectacular baptism during which we heard Kevin Baugh and Renee Saunders and Annika Schwartz and Mary-Kate Hom and Colette Chang declare and pronounce their new lifeness, their change of identity. And if you were there and didn't feel the change of identity, then you don't have a pulse. It was profound and awesome. Then I got the chance to hold them underwater. Paul brings three things to light here about baptism that we got to make sure we get to rightly understand it. First of all, what it signifies, what it means, what it represents. Baptism represents our death. And he makes this death unambiguous. That's why he also mentions we were buried with Christ. Okay, you didn't just die, you were stinking. We buried you. It's done. There's no question about it. You're dead. Secondly, he gives the purpose of our death. Our death is given in the in order that phrase, which is our resurrection, in order that we might be raised to life just as Christ was. This is the utter transformation that we're talking about. This is the real change of identity that we talked about earlier finally tells us how it happened. It happened through the glory of the Father. The word glory, when used in this way, usually refers to greatness or power. In fact, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which Old and New Testament scholars refer to frequently, and it's often used to help them figure out what Hebrew words and what Greek words mean. It's called the Septuagint. In fact, we have older translations of the Septuagint than we have of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Greek Septuagint, again, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, Hebrew words for power are often translated with the Greek word doxa, which is the word used in this passage, the word for glory. One commentator put it this way, our resurrection happened through the power of God gloriously exercised. You know what I love? I like the reference to, and this may have been in Paul's mind, in fact, this incident. Some of you know the Jesus story enough to know the story of Jesus resurrecting a guy from the dead, a friend of his, a guy named Lazarus. And in that chapter 11, it's a great story. Go back and read chapter 11 of John's account of Jesus' life. In chapter 11, verse 40, Jesus says this, Then Jesus said, Didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? I bet you that may have been in Paul's mind when he uses this phrase. Our resurrection happens through the glory of the Father. Through the power of God gloriously. Our new life doesn't happen because of our spiritual searching. Let me say that again. Our new life doesn't happen because of our spiritual searching. It doesn't happen because of our cleverness or our religious upbringing. Our new life happens because of God's great power and awesomeness working in us. Can you see why, based on this understanding of baptism, we don't practice the baptism of infants 
here at Gateway, as some Christians do. I'm convinced that rightly understanding the practice of baptism requires your ability to own it and accept it for yourself. And I encourage you to contemplate it for those of you who have never taken this step of obedience. So let's make sure we don't miss the point because the point here is about, I believe, more than baptism. I want you to notice that baptism is a religious ritual. Okay, I know that's obvious, but let's don't miss it. Paul begins to build his blueprint for personal holiness by referring to a religious ritual. He doesn't start with a farming analogy. He doesn't start with a legal analogy or a warfare analogy. He'll use those in other places. He doesn't start discussing personal holiness by giving us a list of things we should and shouldn't be doing. He starts with what baptism represents. As with baptism, so with other Christian rituals like praise and singing, like listening to the explanation of God's Word, like prayer, like building community with one another. These rituals help nourish and strengthen our connection with God, and they help us grow in holiness in almost exactly the same way that exercise helps us feel better physically and live longer. You know, it's a really popular idea these days, especially among those young people, that you don't need to go to church in order to worship God. In fact, increasing numbers of baby boomers have raised their children, their empty nesters, and their figuring that we don't need church anymore. Because you don't need to go to church in order to worship God, and this is probably true. But the Bible, listen, the Bible doesn't know anything about a Christian who's not deeply connected to other Christians and who's also practicing the rituals of faith with them. The writer of Hebrews puts it like this. Let's consider, let's think about, Let's put some time and think about this. Let's consider how we might spur one another on toward loving good deeds. I think the author of Hebrews knows that we don't get it. We don't stay on the path of loving good deeds unless we're spurring one another on. And let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, even in the first century. But let's encourage one another, in fact, all the more as you see the day approaching. In order to grow in personal holiness, We will be growing, first of all, in our understanding of the profound change of identity which has been realized in us. And if you're not understanding that more and more, if you're not working on that more and more, understanding the new identity that Christ has established in you, then you're not growing in personal holiness and it shouldn't surprise you. And we will be practicing God-honoring rituals together. We'll be praying together. We'll come together on Sunday morning, sometimes when we're tired and it feels boring. We'll come together and we'll sing songs. And we'll pray. And we'll encourage one another. And sometimes after church, we'll go down front and we'll get prayer. There'll be prayer right down here to my left and your right after the service today. We'll come and get prayer because we know we're burdened and we know that this is the way that God has prescribed for us to unburden. And we'll build community together. We'll be disciplined about being in relationship with one another. Occasionally, we'll actually hang out with one another. And we'll find, hey, that guy wasn't so bad. And then we'll get encouragement. And once in a while, we'll hang out with Dean and Althea, and we'll find out more about Dean than we even wanted to know. But once in a while, we'll say, you know, Dean, how do you do this? And Dean will drop some wisdom. And we'll say, wow. And it will bless us. And we will grow. Because we have practiced 
Christian ritual rightly understood. We have miles to go before we sleep, so next week we will continue with Romans chapter 6. And all God's people said...